everyone, and welcome to the second season of One Great History, the podcast all about the great and sometimes not so great parts of Winnipeg history. Uh, I'm Alex. I'm Sabrina. And we've got our producer Nick here too. Hello, everybody. So it's been a while since we've recorded a like main episode. What have we all been up to since we last recorded? I continue to be on the unemployed spectrum of occasionally employed. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I've, uh, I've had some, some music videos to work on. Uh, yeah, like uh, not, not main gig employed, but I did a music video for a band called the Sorrells. It's, uh, like a Saturday morning cartoon animated dealie. Uh, and you can find that on YouTube and the song is available on a seven inch vinyl record, which I also did the cover and back art for. Uh, so that's really cool. That's the first time I've ever been involved in a, uh, in a seven inch, uh, vinyl record. Um, so you can go check that out. And I've also been working on another music video that I can't talk about yet. Uh, it's a super secret thing. Well, that's so. fun. I saw your, the music video has a real, like, a, like original Scooby-Doo vibe. Hey. Yeah. Yeah. I was going for the Hanna-Barbera in the seventies yeah. vibe. Uh, so. <laughs> it was really fun. Cool. I'm glad you guys liked it. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Uh, fun fact. My little sister was very upset to learn that Hannah Barbara was not a woman. And is in fact the last names of two men. Yeah, Joe oh. and Bill. Poor yeah. Lena. Yeah. What a devastating discovery. <laughs> she had the same discovery about Lewis Carroll, also not a woman. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Did you think Lewis was the first name? I don't know. <laughs> that one makes less sense to me. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I mean, I'm I'm back on the employed spectrum of things, but I feel like the most exciting thing I did was that I invented a new joke. Uh, okay. <laughs> okay, what's the joke? Uh, what do you call a hostel for... Or no, hold on. I have to retell it now. I oh, told no. it wrong. <laughs> Fuck. It's a great I knew joke, I'd do Sabrina. This. Anyway, my new joke is what do you call a timeshare for ghosts? What? A time scare. <laughs> <laughs> That's terrible. I've done like... I've done other things, but that's the thing I'm most <laughs> that's proud of. That's the most of. significant. Got it. Yeah. I feel <laughs> I came up with it in the middle of the night and got out of bed to write it down. So I wouldn't forget <laughs> in the morning. You are uh, just four minutes and 50 seconds away from a tight five-minute stand-up routine. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have any more jokes, though. I'll have to wait until I dream the rest up. They'll come in increments over the course of the year. But also, uh, stand-up is a pretty good turn into what we're actually talking about today, because we're talking about vaudeville. So you almost have an act for a vaudeville. Uh, I've I've got the first part of an act, and I think I need to fall down next. You could be like, you could be like the host where you like, you know, you tell a little joke between acts. Yeah, and then I introduce someone else to do the actual hard part. Yeah. (laughs) So you guys know what vaudeville is, I assume. I know Alex does. I do. Yes, Nick. Oh yeah, of course. I yeah. mean, I was a I was a theater and film major in in university, so. You guys want to take a swing at um, explaining what vaudeville is? Uh, yeah, sure. So you and I actually went to a vaudeville show, probably we like did. what, like a year ago, maybe a little more. I think a little more, but yeah, just about. Yeah, like pre pre COVID. Um, I guess vaudeville is basically like an assemblage of different acts. Um, and usually I think there's an aspect of like, does the audience like this or not? Right? So it's like all kinds of different things like comedy, dance, singing, or just like bizarre acts sometimes. 
Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, you, you're pretty close. And if you don't like the act, you throw tomatoes at them, is my understanding. <laughs> yeah, that's basically the gist of it. And the uh, helpful thing for this episode is I actually sat down with uh, Grant Simpson, who is an actual vaudeville performer. Oh. Because they're still around. So uh, Grant Simpson organized the vaudeville show that we saw, Alex. Oh, okay, but he cool. worked in the, he worked in the Yukon for 40 years, both entertaining and managing the vaudeville troupe up there. Oh. And he's now in Winnipeg doing, like, vaudeville training camps and skits, and he hosts um, a radio show on CJNU. So he is the local expert on vaudeville, I would say. Yeah. So thankfully he helped explain some of the uh, finer points to me about the ins and outs of a very, very weird industry. Right, and why, okay, to, I mean, to start off with it being a weird industry, I didn't realize, like, the Yukon was, like, vaudeville central. Yeah, I mean, it kind of, to a certain extent, makes sense. Um, some of the origins of vaudeville go back to, like, variety shows and saloons. Right. So you'd have, like, a bunch of men coming through and drinking in need of entertainment, and then you would put on a skit in a bar, and those would be a little racier and more mm -hmm. eccentric. And then when you want to cater to the masses, you then clean up the variety shows and make them family-friendly, ah. and that's how you get vaudeville. So a lot of, like, early vaudeville stuff sort of comes out of the Yukon, in a way. And, like, we don't really talk about vaudeville as if it's, like, present-day art anymore, because it's not for a lot of people. But what Grant was quick to point out to me is that vaudeville is still here. It's just the industry itself that's gone. Right. So there's not, like, a vaudeville circuit anymore, right? No. So that's all sort of kaput these days. But there's still people doing vaudeville in new and exciting ways. And there's lots of, sort of, elements of vaudeville in modern art. But the stuff that vaudeville draws from is a little bit older. The variety show goes back a little bit further into the early 1800s, but the other main source of inspiration for vaudeville is the minstrel show. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no is right. So for those that don't know, minstrel shows were comedy sketches organized by white performers where they dress up in blackface and then do skits and songs that either appropriated or mocked black culture. It is, fun fact, one of North America's only forms of theater oh. that's original to North America. <laughs> oh, no. <sighs> Not a glowing review. No. So What a rich culture. <laughs> no kidding. So minstrel shows really relied on black stereotypes, some of which still sort of carry on today. And the issue is that for a lot of people, this was the lens for white people to view black people. Right. There weren't black performers on stage in the early 1800s. Mm -hmm. This was the only way to experience black culture. Right. As I guess, bad as especially that like, you know, depending on where you are, if you're, you know, further south, like in somewhere like Winnipeg, there weren't a ton of actual black people here mm -hmm. at that time period. Yeah, exactly. So minstrel shows are sort of really popular at the start of the vaudeville craze in the 1860s. That's when vaudeville really begins to take off as a style of theater. And the thing with vaudeville is, unlike a variety show, is it's sort of organized by a group. So there'd be, like, a set performing schedule of eight to ten shows an act, and that would often tour. Whereas, like, the show at your local bar is just whatever's playing at the local bar. Does right. that make sense? Yeah. And then by the time we hit sort of when Vaudel's coming to Winnipeg, blackface and minstrel shows are already sort of falling out of favor. They still happen, but they're petering out following the 1870s, namely because following the Emancipation Act in 1871, black performers could finally go on stage and do their own routines. 
that's bizarre to be like, no, we don't want actual black performers. We just want people pretending to be black performers. <laughs> kind of. Like, <laughs> it's it's a weird it's a weird little world they've got going on. It's there a logic that only makes sense in the like uber racist culture of like North America. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And at the same time, uh, vaudeville also lumps in some really weird oriental orientalism stuff, namely like sort of Chinese mystics mm. and all of that. Asia wasn't well explored by a lot of white people, so you could really <laughs> say whatever you wanted about anyone from Asia, and people would just be like, "Okay, that seems true to me." <laughs> and vaudeville at its core is kind of about like the strange and the unusual and the entertaining, so mm. that sort of othering comes in pretty frequently. We're going to talk about that a little less. It's not super common in, like, the big Winnipeg shows that we're going to talk about, but I think it's important to say up front there are some weird elements to vaudeville. Right. That it's not just <laughs> fun. It's also sometimes, like, kind of crappy and not nice. Yes, exactly. But with all of that being said, vaudeville was one of the most popular forms of entertainment at the time. It was accessible, it was cheap, and it was family-friendly, so anyone could go and see it. And I'll let uh, Grant talk a bit about how sort of popular vaudeville was at the turn of the century. It's really, you know, the, a bit of misconception about vaudeville is like that vaudeville's gone. I mean, yeah, the vaudeville industry is gone. That's what vaudeville really was when it was in its heyday. It was a huge industry, mm -hmm. you know, 35,000 vaudevillians at any one time traveling around North America to 4,000 theaters all over oh North God. America. And in, in Winnipeg alone, there were three full-time professional vaudeville theaters running at any one time, but there were 43 theaters here. Then they also had like smaller ones that would show movies and have vaudeville acts in between mm -hmm. the movies. Well, they used to call them coolers. Well the, oh. well, the, well, the projectors cooled down to put the film in for the next one. So there were that kind of, and then there were small-time theaters here too mm -hmm. that were you know, made up of locals and professionals that they'd bring in. And, you know, they're all different levels. So mm -hmm. I think there was probably about six or seven theaters offering vaudeville, but three main vaudeville theaters in town. So what strikes me about that right off the bat is 35,000 performers. At any given time. That's crazy. That's a lot of people doing... All sorts of interesting acts. Yeah. Also, that's really fun about the idea of, like, a cooler <laughs> between... Yeah. Like, as as the projector is literally cooling down, here's, like, a fun person to come and juggle for you. Yeah, I'd actually never thought about that being an issue, having, like, the projectors cool down before I knew they got hot, but... Right. And I guess, like, vaudeville in this way is kind of... Um kind of a win-win because you can get performers to fill in like these little spaces but mm -hmm. also like it gives those performers a chance who like maybe wouldn't be able to do two hours on their own yeah nice way to test the waters yeah or you know if you have like a juggling act probably people aren't gonna come and watch just you <laughs> but they want to see no. you for a bit yeah, I mean, I guess the thing with vaudeville, though, is you wouldn't just be juggling on your own for two hours. You would still be part of a, <laughs> yeah. like, bigger set, right? <laughs> That's what I mean, a, yeah. A two-hour juggling routine is mania. That's yeah. what you're describing. <laughs> it's only for the enthusiast. <laughs> so I think what we're going to do is take a uh, sort of walking tour or audio tour through some of Winnipeg's old theaters. Okay. 
that would have done vaudeville. I'm not doing all of them. Some did vaudeville off and on. It was a pain to try and track down. This is not a comprehensive list. It's the most interesting ones. And I've picked some of my favorite weird performers that okay. played at these theaters. So pre-1880, most of Winnipeg's theaters were real rinky-dink. Like, they were in warehouses or above stables. <laughs> wherever there Lovely. was space, they were trying to put in a performance venue. So uh, when they built Winnipeg's first city hall, they also fit a theater inside of it. Oh, weird. Yeah, so yeah. the first city hall was a mess. Right. <laughs> it lasted, it was, like, what, ten years? If that. It was built on the bed of an old creek, and then the building started to shift and fall apart. <laughs> so it's not the most, like, auspicious start to Winnipeg city halls. No. <laughs> but on the upper level of the city hall, there was a 500-seat auditorium. Wow. And... It also had its problems. There were no emergency exits and no safeguards against fire. <laughs> against all odds, it did not burn down. I mean, it didn't have time. <laughs> no, I think if it had been up for maybe another five years, it would have gone the way most Winnipeg buildings do at the time. Yeah. But so City Hall was built in 1876. And then in 1877, there's the first ever show in the Winnipeg City Hall Theater. And it was a fundraiser for the Winnipeg General Hospital, and it also featured the first professional troupe to ever perform in Winnipeg. So prior to 1877, the people that had been playing in Winnipeg were just locals putting on sort of like community theater skits. This is the first group that's paid to be out there, and it's led by Cool Burgess. Who? I'm assuming you guys haven't heard of him. No. Of Cool no, so, Burgess? No. Yeah. Is that his actual name? No, his, his real name was Colin Burgess. Ah. Uh. He was born in Toronto in 1840, and then he went into the vaudeville scene in the 1850s as a minstrel performer. Ow. So Winnipeg's Not first so professional cool, theater Mr. show <laughs> was a blackface show. Oh, no. So his uh, blackface character was called Nicodemus Johnson. <laughs> and he did tap routines in long shoes. Okay. So <laughs> that's it. Here's, here's the thing. And I was talking to you about this a while ago. I didn't realize until recently that, like, clowns, like, the way they traditionally look, are based in minstrel shows. Yeah. It's sort of, it was sort of an epiphany for me a little while ago <laughs> that, like, the big afro and, like, the big shoes and the kind of, like, tramp outfit, all of that is based in, like, blackface shows. Yeah, it's sort of the non-racist version of right they've just show, taken away the like central aspect of like the actual blackface but the rest can stay we just yeah. need to get colorful jeez so we don't really know what cool burgess did at the winnipeg theater i couldn't find anything other than him being hilarious that was the only <laughs> review that he was very funny but uh burgess passed away in 1905 and then his obituaries called him the idol of the minstrel world and the Prince of Burnt Cork Comedians. Oh, gee. <laughs> oh God. So we should they probably are... explain what that means for people who don't know that burnt cork <laughs> was used to darken people's faces for blackface shows. Yeah. Probably also not good for your skin, just logistically speaking. Yeah. <laughs> so the City Hall Theater was demolished in 1883 due to structural concerns, and what came next was the more well-known Gingerbread City Hall. But that didn't have an auditorium in it. Ugh. But then, as we sort of move into the later years, like 1890s, early 1900s, vaudeville theaters 
get bigger and you get grander theaters in Winnipeg, which is when we start to see the origins of the vaudeville circuit coming into Winnipeg. And how the vaudeville circuit works is you might play a theater in Winnipeg and then you and your whole troop are going to take a train and go to Toronto and then slowly loop around across North America. Mm Mm-hmm. So if you're with, say, either the Pantage of the Orpheum chain, that would depend what theaters you're performing at. But the interesting thing I learned from uh, Grant is that there was actually a guidebook, guidebook to traveling vaudeville style. And Winnipeg oh. was included as one of the stops. It's called the Herbert Lloyd's Vaudeville Guide. Um, okay. gen- general information about Winnipeg before arriving in Winnipeg and on the train have some member of the company meaning all the acts going to one theater collect all the keys and have that one person <laughs> make it a point to find the theater bagman who stands <laughs> near the outside door of the station and give him all the keys and he has all your bags examined quickly and without trouble and it will allow you to go at once to your hotel or theater without any waiting for your baggage and uh positively no liquor allowed in this country not even a broken bottle so don't even attempt it so the things that it said about winnipeg was have someone take care of your keys and no liquor (laughs) yeah basically well they added some other stuff about recreation which i'm going to share next but i thought it'd be interesting to sort of start with here's how big of an industry it is that there's a guidebook for how to survive on the road right so this is specifically for vaudeville performers is that the idea yeah this is for vaudeville performers to use while they're traveling. Right, and I guess Winnipeg was a frequent enough like vaudeville stop that you needed to know yeah. what to do here. And there's advertisements in the vaudeville guide for local hotels and places to eat. Hmm. So it's your one-stop shop if you're a vaudeville performer heading through Winnipeg at the time. Right. Uh, we'll move into what they talked about for recreation next. It says, oh, no public golf links, but if you ask the stage manager for a letter to Mr. Rowand, of the Hinkston Smiths Arms Co., who may possibly arrange one for you. So you couldn't publicly golf. All of the golf courses were private. Oh, but if you have a letter for this particular guy, he might let you golf. Yeah, exactly. But there's a tip in the book for how to get a golf course. Right. Huh. Yeah. I guess golfing must have been a pretty popular recreation if you were like, oh, we're in this one city and there's no golf course. Yeah, it was, from what I understand, a pretty popular sport, especially among, I guess, vaudeville troops, but it's a sport where you can rent your equipment at the club, right? Mm, so Yeah. You don't necessarily need to, like, travel with, like, hockey skates and sticks as you go around. Right. And most places did have golf courses, so you're mm. pretty, it's pretty easy to find them, even if you couldn't get in as the public. And what, so, the next so around pu- what time is this? Sorry. I understood it to be around early 1900, but I could be wrong. Right. No, I was I just curious about the, the thing about that. how no liquor was allowed. Yeah, it might have been during Prohibition. I actually didn't check the date on it. It could have been any time. Vaudeville was a thing <laughs> in Winnipeg from, like, the 1890s all the way until the 1930s. Okay. So there's a pretty broad spectrum of when that guide would have been applicable. Right. The next stop on our theater tour is uh, the Victoria Theater, which also has a similar history to the City Hall Theater in that it was originally built as a feed stables in the 1890s. <laughs> it was a stable until 1912, and then it was turned into a theater that showed vaudeville shows and movies. Huh. Briefly, it was known as the Strand Theater Number no. 2, because there were two <laughs> Strand Theaters owned by the same company. And then the Victoria Theater was demolished in 1930. 
And where was it? Uh, it would have been near where Winnipeg Square is today. Okay. A lot of theaters would have been in that sort of neck of the woods, and mm-hmm. then most of them were torn down. Great. Here is um, an ad for the theater when it first opened around 1912. The largest seating capacity in the city, full orchestra and attendance at every show, a comfortable warm place to spend an afternoon or evening and enjoy the latest pictures, both comical and educational. Sanitary fresh air conditions carefully looked after. Get the habit and send the children to the Victoria, then come yourself. You'll enjoy it all. (laughs) So it's warm and it's sanitary. What a... It's clean air. I love that more of that is about how it's just like a comfortable place to go and hang out than about like, we have fun shows here. Yeah, the entire pitch is it's clean and nice. Yeah. (laughs) Which I guess tells tells us a little something about how people were living. Probably, yeah. That, like, hey, come come get out of your, like, gross hovel that you're living in (laughs) for a bit. And I think concerns about theaters at the time, too. A lot of them were sort of notorious fire traps. Right. Like, if they're built with wood, they're overcrowded, they're heated often with gas or lit with gas lights, and there's no fire escapes. I guess, also, if I heard that a local theater had been made out of a stable... My first thought would not be, oh, that sounds comfortable and clean. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, probably not. So the interesting thing with the Victoria Theater is it's the only one we're going to talk about that also doubled as a movie theater Mm. during its operations. But sort of early movies in vaudeville went hand in hand for a while. Early movies were quite short. They would have been like maybe 10 to 20 minutes long at most. They were quiet, so there wouldn't have been any sort of dialogue. And what you would have needed is an orchestra to play accompanying music. Just like a vaudeville show would need, so the orchestra could play for both a live act or a movie. So it's not too hard to split those two things up and do both at the same time. Mm. But we're talking mostly about exclusive vaudeville theaters. So we're going to move on to the Dominion Theater next. The Dominion was built in 1904 on the corner of Portage in Maine, where the uh, Richardson Building is today. Okay. So it was owned by Victor and George Kobold, and it actually wasn't a part of a major vaudeville chain, but the Kobolds struck a deal to share acts with the Orpheum circuit. Oh, and the Orpheum I've heard of. Yeah, so the Orpheum was one of the bigger vaudeville chains, Mm -hmm. and it had theaters all across North America, and they had some of the bigger acts. So if they could spare some performers to come to the Dominion, it worked out great for the Dominion Theater, and Mm -hmm. then... The Orpheum can get more acts for Winnipeg. I'm assuming there was some sort of financial deal going on there as well. Right. And then the Kobolds sold the theater to William Blake Lawrence. And Lawrence actually changed the uh, deal so they were no longer associated with the Orpheum. And he placed it with the Sullivan Constantine circuit. Okay. Which I'm assuming no one has heard of. No. No. That's, that's <laughs> not, not a super, like, snappy title there. No. So the Sullivan Constantine Circuit had 20 theaters, and they would have been affiliated with about 20 more. So there were about 40 theaters running the same circuit across North America. Mm-hmm. And uh, Constantine notably had this really weird rivalry with Alexander Pantages, who we'll talk about in a minute. Excellent. And Alexander Pantages owned the Pantages Theater, but they were both based in the States, and John Considine and Alexander Pantages tried to steal acts from each other, and then also sometimes each other's equipment. Their equipment? Their equipment. I have no idea how that works, but I'm sure just chaos wherever they were going. Like, the headhunting I get, but the idea that they'd, like, sneak into each other's places and, like, take a microphone is pretty funny. (laughs) Or, like, their backdrop or their prop tree or whatever. (laughs) 
But then also John Considine's daughter, our son, married Alexander Pantage's daughter. Oh, little Romeo yeah. and Juliet there. Apparently. So that was the group that managed entertainment at the Dominion Theater for a time. And then Lawrence himself went on to buy out a couple other theaters in Winnipeg. And he actually managed his own sort of stock company of local actors in Winnipeg. So this would have been like a group of local performers who did a variety of shows. And then, after a number of years of vaudeville, the Dominion Theater became home to Theater 77 in 1957, which would then merge with uh, the Little Winnipeg Theater a year later to form MTC. Oh! So they were actually based out of the Dominion Theater initially. Right. And then they operated there for a number of years and then moved to where they are today. Right. I was going to say, I don't feel like that building is that old. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's not. The MTC building that's around today was built in 1970. Okay. So left the Dominion Theater, moved to the concert hall briefly, and then went to their current location. Mm. Yeah. And my favorite act of the Dominion Theater is Fontanelle, the Auto Man. The The Auto Man? I'm going to send you guys a link that I want you to look at. Okay. Because I found a description of his act and what he looked like. He sounds like a very fancy mechanic. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's not quite what he is. Like, is he, yeah, is he a robot? Is he a man who likes cars? There are so many ways that you could be an auto man. (laughs) Is he something you put your feet on? (laughs) (laughs) It's not going to be what you expect. Okay. I posted the link in the chat. Oh, okay. Uh... Alex, what do you you think it is? (laughs) Okay, so it appears to be um, a man next. It's not a great photo, but it appears to be a man next to like a, a humanoid robot with like cogs yeah. in his middle bit. <laughs> However, yeah. I am skeptical <laughs> that this is in fact a real humanoid robot and not just a person. <laughs> Interesting you say that. <laughs> So, Fontanelle was an automaton shaped like a man that could walk and talk via a gramophone in his chest. What? (laughs) Would it surprise you to learn that he was exposed as a fraud a couple years later? What? So, essentially, uh, Fontanelle was a man in a costume wearing um, many, many pounds of machinery to make it look like he was a robot. (laughs) <laughs> and then a man named Dr. Farrell was operating Fontanelle and that was the whole thing. Um, okay, so what this looks like to me... Have you guys seen the film The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari? No. no. Okay, so it's like, it's a silent film from I think around like 1920. It's like a creepy German film about a guy who has power over this like somnambulist, like a sleepwalker. So he kind of, like, calls him out of his, like, thing that he sleeps in and he does stuff. But it looks very similar to this. <laughs> so it looks like a man in a costume. It, I mean, yeah, it's just, like, a guy <laughs> who, like, walks with stiff legs, basically. Apparently when they revealed the act, like, Dr. Farrell himself gave the jig up. Ah. So it wasn't like someone went in and snuck around and exposed him. He said, this is this is my friend who's being a robot. <laughs> Here's how it works. Do you think he was But there was also a case of, like, additional parts. So no one really knows how every single part of the act would have worked. (laughs) Do you think he was a real doctor? I doubt it. (laughs) I would be very surprised to learn that he was. But, 
sometimes vaudeville is just full of weird trickery like that. Uh, okay, there's a great picture here of it, the auto man almost falling to the floor at one point. Yeah, so it's just a guy who can fall over. Yeah, <laughs> what a great <laughs> trick. <laughs> I mean, some vaudeville acts were a little more spectacular, which is going to be what we're going to talk about at our next uh, theater, which is actually Happy Land. Okay. So, Happy Land was an amusement park that was in the neighborhood of Wolseley that was there from about 1906 to 1914. They had rides, they had entertainment, they had golf courses, it was a whole lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. But they did also have a stage to put on vaudeville shows. Okay. So, Happy Land didn't really have a vaudeville circuit they worked with, it was really whatever they could get. Right. So, they had some, I would say, less PC acts. Oh, interesting. To what the other theaters might put on. I feel like the Happy ones, Land which... is not where I'd expect that to be. You would think, and yet, let me describe the act that I'm going to talk about. They came to they came to Winnipeg in 1907. It was a Colonel Gaston Bordaveri, and it was a family act. And initially what it was is the colonel learned how to play a specific tune on a piano. And what he did is he set up a piano with bullseyes, and he would take a pistol out and he would shoot one of the bullseyes and it would correspond to a key on the piano. Okay. So he could play a song using only his rifle and the bullseyes. That's kind of fun. Yeah. Um, there's some doubt about if it actually worked or not, or someone else was, say, manning the piano oh, behind the scenes. Yeah. Because I think firing, it's it was 66 shots of a rifle to make the song happen. Right. And I think between, like, aiming and reloading, that would be incredibly difficult to do. <laughs> I feel like that might be a very slow song. <laughs> It wasn't. It's, um, Calaveria Rusticana. It's an actual, like, opera song. Oh, okay. Weird. It's a little faster, and it would, I think, be hard to play with your gun, but <laughs> I'm not an expert marksman by any means. But that was the uh, grand finale of his act when he came to Winnipeg in 1907. Uh, his opener was he brought his wife out on stage with him. And his wife was dressed in very elaborate clothing, and I'm actually just going to read the uh, Tribune review okay. for what happened, because I think it explains it pretty well. The climax of the marksmanship skills of this clever pair come to a climax when Madame Bordaveri, arrayed in fashionable evening costume, appears on stage and submits to having her garments shot off by her husband. Oh my. Bing, off come the pins that fasten the hat. Off, come, off comes another pin. Off drops the plumed hat to the floor. The lady does not move. Truth to tell, she does look a bit nervous. <laughs> she closes her eyes to escape the sight of the vicious-looking muzzle of the gun. She bites her lip probably to keep her face rigid. The slightest deviation, the least swaying of the body or the unconscious movement of the head might cause a disastrous accident. By the end of this, Madame Bordaveri wound up standing on stage in just her lingerie, looking, as the Winnipeg Tribune called it, mighty French-looking. <laughs> <laughs> you know the French always in their lingerie. Right. Um, Apparently. That actually sounds like an amazing act, though. Doesn't it? I would pay to see that. Yeah, I like, mean, he then finished it up with the piano gun number, so you really get two spectacular shooting things going on at the same time. I feel like hearing that he was able to, like, shoot the buttons off a dress does make me more willing to believe that he could shoot a song. It's possible, yeah. Um, there's an online encyclopedia of vaudeville, and they noted these acts were not above suspicion, was the exact <laughs> wording they used. 
Because I'm sure there are ways to fake that. Right. I guess you could have some kind of, like, easy release latch or something that just, like, pops open and, yeah. But in that case, the fakery would be, I think, just as impressive as the genuine marksmanship. Totally. I mean, when you go to a magic show, like, you don't think you're seeing real magic. It's just like, ooh, how can you trick me? Yeah. The fun isn't being tricked. Yeah. So our next theater is the Bijou Theater. And the acts at the Bijou aren't going to be nearly as risque, sadly. Yeah. You'd only really get the risque stuff at a theater that's not affiliated with the chain. Okay. The bigger chains wanted to appeal to a large audience. They didn't want to show anything offensive that might, like, dismay the women in the audience. Right. And lose them followers. So you wouldn't Cause see the women a woman to faint. French. Yeah, basically. So the Bijou Theater we're talking about is the one that would have been around 494 Main Street. Not the Bijou Opera House. There's a lot of theaters named the Bijou in Winnipeg at different points. <laughs> this caused me no small amount of stress yeah. <laughs> during research. I think I texted Alex about it a number of times saying, well, someone else is called the Bijou now. Yeah. <laughs> it was called the Bijou and then it wasn't called the Bijou. And <laughs> yeah. Three different places gave different addresses for the same theater. It's very stressful. <laughs> so the Bijou, like the Victoria, was a joint vaudeville and movie house. And the Bijou is interesting because the Bijou was one of the first movie theaters in Winnipeg when it opened up in 1906. So movies as a concept weren't super, super new. Like they'd been around for about a decade, but they were shown sporadically Mm -hmm. and there wasn't really a dedicated movie house for them. Uh, The first dedicated movie theater actually opened in 1905 in Pittsburgh. Okay. It's the Nickelodeon Theater. So we were, like, not far behind the trend then. No, we were, I would say, within a year of the trend. Hmm. Which is very on top of things. So, much like the Victoria Theater, it would have been a mix of vaudeville and movies. And here's the lineup for a showing in 1906. Um, The Takao Quartet, which performed opera songs. Next was the Great Martin, the only rival of Louis Fuller. The only rival. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And all I know is that it was a dance in which over two tons of plate glass mirrors are introduced. <laughs> so I'm going to assume the attempt is not to break those. I don't know. Like, maybe, but two tons is a lot of plate glass mirrors. That's true. Yeah. Or maybe it, or maybe it's a show where you smash them all. That also sounds fun. Yeah. It's got to be one I of I don't really know. They don't explain it, and they don't explain who Louis Fuller is either. There's really no explanation for why this act is exciting. And then there's um, a screamingly funny version of Othello by Mills and Beecher. The notoriously funny play Othello. Yeah. Right. How are they going to make that a, a laugh riot? I have no idea. Wow. Ha ha, the man strangled his wife. I mean, Maybe. And then at the end of all of those, there were a handful of short films. Okay. At the time I read The View, they hadn't actually announced the lineup of films yet. They were still trying to figure that out. So it would have been like four acts and then a couple of shorter movies. I guess it makes sense if movies are like not all that long yet that like that wouldn't be the thing that you'd go and sit in front of for two hours, right? No, it would be... Not long, and maybe not always exciting. Some of the films you'd get in would be, like, educational films about the wonders of the world. (laughs) Right. (laughs) They're not all, like, fun dramas. So, the Bijou burned down in 1979. Oh, that's pretty recent. Yeah, uh, if you've been to Old Market Square in the city, that little, like, 
annex thing between Red River College and the Exchange Biz Office is Bijou Park. That's where the theater was. Huh. It's called Bijou Park and there is a plaque, but I don't think anyone ever looked at the plaque besides me. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I don't read plaques as a rule. I read them, but I don't retain anything. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I've been places with you and I know you don't read things. <laughs> no, it's true. <laughs> We both don't, though. I think we're both bad for that. Yeah. Especially since you both have worked as tour guides. <laughs> no. Like, what's but, this plaque here, Sabrina? I don't know. I don't know. I, but that's what makes me a good tour working. guide, is that I know what people don't have the attention span for. Yeah. I'm like, I would yeah. not read this sign, therefore. <laughs> no one else will. Yeah. <laughs> we're actually moving into the top three theaters in Winnipeg now. Okay. And... Um, I talked to Grant a little bit of what made each theater so exciting. But the Orpheum only did two shows a day. They did one in the afternoon and one at night. Okay. The uh, Pantages did three shows a day. So that was considered small time because you had to work harder for your money. Mm-hmm. And the Strand could have up to eight shows a day. Oh my God. That's so many shows a day. Was it all the same performers each time? Yeah, they would just go around. They had what they called continuous vaudeville. So they'd open at 11 in the morning and run vaudeville till midnight. So those are our top three theaters, the Strand, the Pantages, and the Orpheum. That's crazy. So I was blown away by three shows a day. <laughs> and then eight comes in and just blows it out of the water. <laughs> yeah, I get like, that's kind of like when we have like Fringe Festival, you can kind of like, oh, it's like whatever time I'm going to see what's showing. It kind of sounds yeah. like that just like all day, all the time. Yeah, but it's the same performers just in a loop. Right. I mean, I guess if you're only doing like a three minute bit or whatever, that's fine. Also, very tiring as it turns out. And the one thing Grant did say when I asked him about people getting exhausted was that it was a really good way to sort of perfect an act. Right. If you were like a little less sure about what bits worked and what didn't, doing it eight times a day was a really good way to sort of fine tune it to perfection. Which I guess both, like you and I both know from tours as well, that like some days you have to do like four of the same tour in a row. And by the last one, you're like, okay, this is the joke that everyone likes. This is the one that doesn't. This is the joke that literally never lands. No, (laughs) but I'm going to keep telling it because I like it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So the Strand Theater was sort of the third-rate vaudeville theater in Winnipeg at the time, I think because it did so many shows. Like, the higher-paid vaudeville stars aren't going to be willing to work that much. Oh, yeah, that's fair. So the Strand Theater is at the corner of Maine and Rupert, where the Manitoba Museum is now. And its tagline when it opened is, Get the Strand Habit. <laughs> that sounds like you're gonna get sick with something <laughs> does a little bit <laughs> or like pick up smoking so, or something like it's like <laughs> yeah <laughs> just a bit so the theater itself was actually designed by uh, carter halls aldinger which i bring up because they're the architects who designed the bay downtown oh this is like a fairly prominent architecture firm that designed right. the building to build a third-rate theater yeah i mean it was still like a big vaudeville house so yeah. it still did well um so to see a show in 1913, tickets cost you about 15 cents. Okay. Which is fairly meaningless to us today, but going to see a fancier show might run you over a dollar. Okay. For some context. So I guess it makes sense then why to... you'd have like the the less fancy one, right? That like, this is what you can afford to go to all the time. I mean, most vaudeville, it doesn't seem to have exceeded more than 20 to 30 cents. Okay. It's it's uh, entertainment for the masses was sort of the tagline for it. So if people couldn't afford to go, you weren't doing your job. <laughs> right. So like, so, would would 
going to see vaudeville be like frowned upon for like an upper class person then? It's possible. They had like fancier box seats that you could pay to go to. Okay. It was generally targeted more towards the working class than say the upper crust who might go to uh, the Burton Cummings Theater to go see an opera. Yeah. So the Strand Theater becomes the Strand Theater number one in 1914 because the Victoria Theater was bought out by the Strand Company. Oh. And then in 1930, the Strand Theater uh, was bought out and its name was changed to the Beacon. And notably, it was still a vaudeville house oh. by this point. Many other ones had sort of petered out of being a vaudeville house by the 30s. Right. Not the Beacon. Right. And then it was finally torn down to make way for the Manitoba Museum in 1967. So there are a couple uh, really interesting acts that come through the Beacon that I really liked. There was um, one um, that was a novelty act called Direct from the Orient, which was Chinese magicians of the highest order with 23 trained birds. (laughs) That sounds fun. And then... They did an absolutely bizarre promotion in 1922 where they had um, Honey Boy chocolate ice cream to give away to 500 boys and girls who attended a matinee. I mean, I would go for free ice cream. And then uh, my favorite act that I read about was put on by Abe Levinsky or Al Bord. I couldn't really figure out who he was. He seems to have been like a local comedian and talent manager who worked at the theater. So he actually bought out the set and costumes of the Ziegfeld Follies from 1921 and then brought that to Winnipeg for 1922. Oh. So the Ziegfeld Follies, just for those who haven't heard of them, were sort of like a musical review show in New York that was pretty big. And it was like the hottest entertainers of the day with girls in fancy costumes. It's where sort of chorus lines come from. And like the Rockettes are the, I think, closest modern version to that that we have today. Mm. But the Ziegfeld Follies were a pretty big deal. And... Al Bord brought some of that to Winnipeg. But then he also did a uh, show called Afraid of Bean Soup. What? <laughs> and I would like you guys to guess what the plot of Afraid of Bean Soup is. Uh, I think that it's about you trying to take bean soup in your backpack <laughs> and spilling it everywhere. And being afraid that no. your friends are going to make fun of you. <laughs> <laughs> On our podcast about the bean thing again. <laughs> No, no, it is weirder than spilling um, a can of beans in your backpack. <laughs> um, so, is it about someone who was once poisoned by bean soup and now has like PTSD specifically to do with bean soup? You're closer. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so the plot is that Abe Levinsky played the fifth husband of a woman whose previous four husbands had passed away as a result of eating uh, too much bean soup. What? <laughs> the wife. Not poisoned, they ate too much and died. Oh! And the wife, apparently, insists on serving bean soup once a day, and the previous husbands had all taken on the habit of assuming disguises and fake names to avoid having to eat the soup. (laughs) (laughs) That actually sounds so good. Doesn't it? Apparently, the disguises were also partially to avoid, like, debtors, because the wife was in debt. But it seems like the bean soup was the primary culprit. Oh my god. Just disguising yourself to not eat bean soup. But like also, if you're like, it must be really good bean soup if you like eat so much that you die. You die. Because like eating one bowl of bean soup a day is not enough to kill you. No, but then the wife keeps serving it too, despite all of her husband's (laughs) eating too much of it and then dying. The doctor is like, please, ma'am. Please do not serve any more bean soup. 
I cannot tragically find any more information on this play. It seems like it was only put on in Winnipeg and nowhere else. For reasons that I think are obvious. I think but... we should revive it at Fringe or something. Like... <laughs> Okay, actually, that sounds like a great, that sounds spot on for a fringe play. Yeah, I would go see Afraid of Being Soup at Fringe. It's it's like a one-man act with, yeah. (laughs) Actually, a one-man act of someone trying to be the wife and the four husbands all assuming disguises (laughs) is pretty good. Yeah. I think we're on to something, but I don't think, at least I'm not qualified to do it. If someone is listening and is um, an actor with many different costumes, please put this on. Yeah. Please organize Afraid for afraid of Bean Soup for us. We'll promote it. <laughs> and go. <laughs> so the next story about the Strand is less weird and a little sweeter, and Grant told it to me about his friend Howie Sims. So Alex and I saw Howie Sims perform at the Vaudeville show. He is a, I believe, 99-year-old former Vaudeville star from Winnipeg. So sweet. And here's the story of how Howie met his wife. My friend Howie, who's 99 years old now, and he was on the beacon stage and the, you know, he did all the stages. He, he did mm-hmm. all the local stages and him and his brother were, you know, pretty big local stars. In 1938, he was on the beacon stage performing with the Haymakers. That was the name of his group. And his brother was a virtuoso banjo uke player. And okay. he, had, he had a way of doing a figure eight thing with this at really high speeds. And he could yeah. flip the banjo around and oh, toss it up in cool. the air, catch it. <laughs> and uh, and he'd go over and he'd pinch, he'd, you know, uh, Howie yodeled. That was his one of his big things. He was a really good yodeler. And he'd be yodeling and his brother would go up and pinch his behind. And <laughs> Howie would go up really high. And, you know, I mean, they just did that kind of clowning, but also real good musicianship. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so... Uh, Another act on stage was called the Dale Sisters, and it was a, a two-girl dance team, and they, they did tap dancing and ballroom dancing. They kept bumping into each other backstage <laughs> and started talking, and I had Howie, Howie the, when I first started my radio show, he was yeah. the first guest I had on, CJ. Oh, of course, yeah. And I love the way he says, well, you know, we just got talking backstage, and, you know, well... I fell in love. Oh, that's so cute. Very cute. They were married for just under 65 years. Wow. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah, and I think when we went to see, when we saw Howie, I think also his, like, granddaughter or great-granddaughter even performed, hey? Yeah, so his daughter, I think, teaches dance, and his granddaughter did, like, a little dance routine while he sang You Are My Sunshine. Yeah. Oh, it was just lovely. So Howie would have been performing in the 1930s. Which, interestingly, is when some theaters start giving away things as promotional material. Okay. So the Strand Theater, then the Beacon, gave away dishes to people who went to go see shows. Oh. The Bijou Theater gave away glasses. Collectible dishes are kind of a thing that's, like, gone by the wayside, hey? Yeah, a little bit. Although, were they, like, branded dishes, or was it just, like, have a plate? It's (laughs) unclear. This was in, like, an oral history I listened to, and they weren't very specific about what they would have gotten. They just remembered getting plates. Right. But it's an interesting way to sort of promote your theater during a time of economic hardship is get some housewares from us. Yeah. I mean, I'm unemployed. I would go somewhere they gave me free plates. Yeah, also. <laughs> cost you somewhere between, like, 50 cents to probably around a dollar by 1930. Yeah. So our next theater we're going to talk about is the Orpheum. So the Orpheum was technically the first-rate theater in Winnipeg, but we're talking about it second in the list because the Pantages is the only theater that's still standing 
everything else on this list has been demolished. Oh, jeez. So the Orpheum isn't really around anymore. So the Orpheum opened in 1911, and it was part of the Ameri- American Orpheum vaudeville circuit, which was founded in 1886 and then became part of the Radio Keith Orpheum, or RKO. So that as a film st- studio produced, like, King Kong and Citizen Kane. Oh. So the Orpheum was always a pretty big deal in whatever iteration it was in. Right. So when they moved to Winnipeg, this would have been their 19th theater and their first theater in Canada. And then it brought in some of the biggest named stars for a number of years. And then in 1937, its name was changed to the RKO Theater. And then after being used as a venue for artists during World War II, it was closed and torn down in 1946. And I have another two fun Orpheum stories. And one is from me, one's from Grant. And we'll play Grant's first. It's my favorite. It involves a murder. Or not a murder. It involves a death. I'm being dramatic. (laughs) (laughs) And during their run here, one of the actors in Keenan's troupe, one of the lead actors, was uh, he he died while he was <laughs> no. waiting to make his entrance. And so Keenan's daughter was like giving the cue line and, you know, why isn't he answering? And she went over to open the door to see why he wasn't answering his cue line. And when she opened the door, he fell face down onto the stage. <laughs> oh, no. And uh so, but he fell down where I guess the general audience couldn't really see him. So she just oh. carried on and acting and tried to, she was trying to get the other people's attention. Like, oh no, this happened, you know, like yeah. something, but the show must go on. So they finished the act and everybody was taking a bow and then they kept getting encored. So the <laughs> curtains, kept, every time the, you know, the curtain would drop and, and they would want to rush to this guy's aid and uh, they, the curtains would go up again and everybody would be oh, clapping. No. And so... Anyways, after three bows, they finally rushed over to this guy and he was on his last legs. He had died of a heart attack. Oh, no. Um, And so she was traumatized. There's even a story next the next couple days that, you know, this poor girl was still traumatized because she was like 17, I think. Yeah, who wouldn't be? (laughs) Yeah, that's very upsetting. Anyways, Edwin and and she fell in love and they were married shortly after in new york i think <laughs> oh my god wow yeah um like that's that's super sad and upsetting but also possibly the most slapstick way to die is slightly off stage of. yeah well everyone has to keep taking bows and trying to like get people's attention of yeah. like i'm doing my performance but also someone please help <laughs> So the big notable name in that story is Edwin, who comes in at the end. Edwin is the guy who played Uncle Albert in Mary Poppins in 1964. Oh, I knew I knew the name. So Edwin was one of the highest paid vaudeville stars at the time. He was a fairly well-known vaudeville comedian. He was touring in Winnipeg on the Orpheum circuit alongside Hilda and Frank Heenan, Warren Coolin, and Jonathan T. Burke. So Hilda, Frank, and Warren were all in the sketch together. And then Warren was the one that passed away on stage. Oh, jeez. And apparently, Ed and Hilda fell in love and got married after that tour. Well, that's nice. So you got a fun little love story in the middle of maybe the most bizarre death story. Yeah. (laughs) So uh, my fun Orpheum story actually has less to do with the Orpheum and more to do with, like, an Orpheum-related incident. Okay. So this is um, a story from the Winnipeg Tribune. And the headline reads, Lost, one perfectly good reporter. Finder, please return to the Tribune office. (laughs) (laughs) And it continues, When four elephants belonging to a company built at the Orpheum Theater broke out of their stable, the reporter broke away, 
from a perfectly good news assignment and joined in the chase. The reporter returned with the elephant story, minus the perfectly good news story. (laughs) Come on. Here is the story as written by the reporter. It has been concerned by the company's press agents. Newspaper reporter turned elephant hunter at 11 o'clock this morning when word was given out by Deputy Deputy Chief Newton that four trained elephants built at the Orpheum Theater had broken loose from the trainers and were on the rampage near Kate Street. (laughs) Police received the report that the elephants had become cold when unloaded from the cars at the CPR station and had escaped. They were animals brought in from New Orleans. One of the animals headed in the direction of the General Hospital by way of William Avenue, and the other three were seen close behind. One of the elephants entered the powerhouse at the hospital by a side door and wrecked the premises. <laughs> in wandering through the building, the elephant leaned up against a high-voltage light switch, and the shock drove him out on the street where he scared horses and rigs and several pedestrians to safety behind nearby houses. The trainer and reporters followed close behind and were able to pacify the animals who allowed the men to lead them back to the stables on James Street. C. Lemon of 45 William Avenue was injured by the elephants who entered a building at William and Pacific and pushed him out the other side, the police announced. <laughs> Lemon suffered a broken right leg and other minor injuries. Dr. P. Toms, who attended him, said, uh, Two other men who attempted to rescue the injured man were charged by the elephants and forced to find shelter in a private residence. Wow. There's an element of, like, passive aggression in that that I really enjoy. I, I love that the beginning, like, I don't know if that's the editor who wrote that or if that's, like, the reporter, like, self-roasting or, like... <laughs> I don't know. It's so hard to tell. Either way, I feel like the elephant story was worth leaving whatever he had been previously reporting on. I think that would be more exciting. There's an elephant on the rampage near the hospital. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a bizarre occurrence in Winnipeg, a city with notoriously few elephants. I might think that I had gone insane if I saw that. Like, I might <laughs> just fair. think I've lost it. Back when the uh, when the arena was by Polo Park there, and I worked at my dad's car dealership that was by Polo Park, it was like a Saturday afternoon, and we looked out the window, and we saw four elephants in a field, and we were like, what is going on? And then we learned that the circus was in town. But like, yeah, like just to look out and see, like, there's elephants. Yeah. Like, <laughs> You start to panic a little bit. It's a weird thing to see. Or, like, yeah. the bit where, like, they had to take a refuge in, like, a private residence. Like, imagine, like, yeah. several men coming to your door and being like, can we come in? There's an elephant. Like, no. But then also, looking out onto the street and seeing an actual yeah. live elephant chasing them. <laughs> <laughs> so, our final theater on this tour is the Pantages Theater, which is the only one of the theaters I've mentioned that's still standing. Mm-hmm. The Pantages was technically second-rate theater in Winnipeg, but there are still some pretty big acts that would come through over time. The Pantages story is one I told on tours a lot, so it's very familiar to probably Alex and I, and I assume no one else is. (laughs) We're not going to get too far into his life story, because I feel like that is its whole own thing, and could take up probably an entire episode. But the long and short of it is that he was an immigrant to America who... Struck it big during the gold rush doing vaudeville shows and scamming his then fiance, uh, Klondike Kate. Yeah. Klondike and Kate? Aww. Klondike Kate is very fascinating as a historical figure. She has no bearing on Winnipeg at all. Yeah. Uh, but she was like a huge vaudeville star called the Queen of the Klondike and made a decent amount of money doing like sort of big name productions at the Yukon and then 
got scammed out of her money by Pantages. And, and then I think probably did times. some scamming of her own, too, honestly. Oh, she must have. <laughs> There's a story that she escaped into the Yukon by dressing as a boy, because they weren't allowing women to go up there. Oh. So she, like, tucked her hair in a cap and it snuck in. Huh. But it's hard to know. Yeah. Both... Rockwell in Pantages are fairly prone to exaggeration, it seems. <laughs> but Alexander Pantages, um, after making all this money in the Yukon, opened up his first theater in Seattle in 1902, and then began slowly expanding a vaudeville chain, which reached Winnipeg in 1913. So the Pantages circuit began in Minneapolis and then came to Winnipeg and then looped around. I've been to that its... Pantages in Minneapolis. It's gorgeous. Yeah, the Pantages theaters are nice. Yeah. There's... A similar design to most of them, as far as I can tell, depending on if they're, like, owned by Pantages or an affiliated theater. Mm. So the one in Winnipeg was built for the Pantages company. So there's sort of a standardized, like, elaborate classical design going on. It's meant to replicate the feel of a higher class theater than it is. Oh, interesting. At its peak, there would have been 32 Pantages theaters across North America, and then... He controlled about another 40 that he didn't build, so there were about 70 Pantages theaters in the circuit. Wow. And as a fun fact, Alexander Pantages banned black performers and the company was sued about it. <laughs> oh, no. Jeez. I couldn't want to think about changing the name of that theater. <laughs> the more I hear about this guy, the more he's pretty sketchy. This guy does suck, but the theater is called the Playhouse technically now. I don't think That's anyone true. actually calls it that. No, it's. But, I think everyone calls it the Pantages Playhouse, if anything. Yeah. But also, like, just generally the world's biggest jerk. By 1923, the Pantages Theater had closed. He wasn't making as much money, so he bailed. The Winnipeg Ballet then took over, and then the city sort of bought it out around the time, too. And now we don't know what's going to happen to it, because it's a hard building to renovate, and it's currently for sale or has been sold. It's unclear. Yeah, I thought it had been sold, but I don't quite know what's going on with it. No, I don't know either. I feel like it was one of those sold for a dollar things. And then in yeah. conjunction with various companies or organizations, they're going to renovate it. But that was like two years ago. And I haven't heard anything about its revitalization. Yeah. I think we won't know for a while. It'll be a tough building to deal with. It yeah. does have three levels of heritage status. The building isn't going to go anywhere, barring like a massive disaster. And what's notable about the Pantages Theater, though, is that of, like, the 70 affiliated theaters, there's maybe six left. Oh, wow. And one of them is in Winnipeg. Huh. So definitely so, worth doing something with. Absolutely. So my uh, notable Pantages story actually involves movies. They didn't really show movies that often, but in 1919, there was a boxing tournament at Royal Albert Hall in London that was filmed, and the reels were actually shipped across North America, and the Pantages Theater got distribution rights. So they actually screened each of the boxing matches in succession over the course of about six weeks. And uh, one of the boxers' names was Bombardier Wells. <laughs> That's fun. Which is just a fun name. Yep. So, yeah, you can go see a boxing match at the theater. Ah, cool. That concludes part one of our Vaudeville special. Uh, you can follow us on social media at One Great History. And uh, on Twitter, that's the number one great history uh you can visit onegreathistory.wordpress.com thanks for tuning in to our season two premiere uh we will be back in two weeks with part two of this episode focusing on winnipeg vaudeville actors uh that's that's it for uh, sabrina janky and alex judge 
I'm Nick Friesen saying thanks for tuning in.